How do you really know something about someone? The people in your life, your friends, coworkers, neighbors, family. Like, how do you really know what they're all about or who they are? Have you ever wondered that? Or have you ever wondered what people think when they see you? You know, I was reading a really funny article this week that talked about you can learn a lot about someone by the type of socks that they wear. Now, I know it's summertime in Colorado. Half of you guys probably aren't even wearing socks, right? Who, who here has socks on? Okay, you guys are keeping the, keeping the sense right today in the room. Well, but I want you, if you didn't wear socks today, I want you to imagine that you wore your normal socks. Because when you walk into a place, the socks that you wear tell a lot about your personality. So for instance, who here has got black socks on right now or normally wears black socks? Okay, well, did you know that, and here's a, we've got some pictures to go along with these if you forget what color black socks look like. (laughs) But did you know that if you wear black socks, that means that you came ready to impress and that you were all business. You guys all business today? Yeah, I can tell. You guys are getting your worship on, right? I'm getting my Bible on today. How many of you are wearing white socks Okay, got a couple white socks. So they say that if you wear white socks, you are a very sensible person, right? So if you see somebody with white socks and you're having a tough day, just go talk to them. It's, you know, it's like a prayer request just waiting to happen, right? (laughs) How many of you like colored or striped socks? Anybody wearing striped socks right now? A couple of you guys? Yeah. So it says that if you actually like color or striped socks, that you're here to party. So welcome, guys. (laughs) Welcome. It's a good, it's going to be a good day. What about crazy socks? Anybody here wearing crazy socks today? Tony? Oh, they're calling Tony out. We're going to have to bring Tony on stage. Well, they say, Tony, if you wear crazy socks, that you're a madman. Or a mad woman, if you have, like this one, right? What about no-show socks? Anybody like the no-show socks? I'm a no-show sock guy. You know what they say about people who wear no-show socks? You can't trust them. I don't know what that's saying, guys, but I'm going to do my best to earn your trust today. So, but isn't it funny, though, you think about, like, the things that we learn about people. Oh, by the way, look at your neighbor's socks and then cast a glare at them, like, I see you. I see you. So, there's so many things we can learn about people, right? You can learn the way people spend their time. You can learn so much about the way that people spend their money, obviously, the way they dress. But I think, especially as we kind of dive into what God tells us about life, that there is one thing that really helps us understand people and where they are in life, and that is the way that they worship. Somebody say worship. Sometimes when we hear that word worship, though, we imagine like singing a song at church or we get a picture of like a monk or something like that. But I think worship is, is something that is, is, is bigger, it's broader, it's a, a bigger umbrella than any one little thing. I, I like what Louis Giglio says about worship. He says that worship is our response to whatever we value most in our lives. What do you think about that? What is it that you value most in your life? And how do you respond to it? That would be a form of worship. And so... You might be sitting here thinking, though, well, I'm not really sure what it is that I I value most. Like if somebody met you on the street and you're out walking your dog or your cat or whatever you're walking, if you're walking a cat, come see me later, we gotta talk. 
whenever you're walking and you're, you meet somebody across the street and you, you've been meaning to talk to them and you come across and you, you get to know them a little bit and you're like, hey, tell me about yourself. Who are you? How would you answer that question? See, the way you answer that question defines really what you value because we end up basing our identity in life on the things that we value most, which are the things that we worship. So you're walking down the street and you meet somebody. What are you going to say? If it's your family that you value most, you might say, I'm a husband or I'm a wife. I'm a, I'm a mom. I'm a dad. I'm a grandparent, proud aunt or uncle. If it's your career you value most, you might say, I'm an engineer, right? I, I work at a barbecue shop. I, you know, I'm an auto mechanic. But if it's your hobbies, you might lead with, I love to ski, I'm a mountain biker, I'm a hiker, right? You guys get what I'm saying? What is it that you lead with? In our culture, so often now, we see people leading with the things they find their identity, like sexuality, or, or the, 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 the things that they feel like are drawing them in. So what, what is it for you? If somebody says, who are you? How are you going to answer that question? So I think this is really important for us to realize because there is this reality in life that what we value most shapes our identity. So we begin to look through this lens and we begin to fit ourselves in this box of what we think and culture thinks should be part of that identity. So if we find ourselves outside of that box, it it shakes us and we try to fit back inside of it. And so we say things like, well, I am blank. And so then I try to navigate around that. But here's the problem with that. What happens when someone challenges this structure that we think that we fall into? Because imagine, how many of you guys have been to the carnival? Okay? You guys are like, you know, it's like Austin Powers talked about, you know, carnies. You guys, you know what I'm talking about? Like they got small hands and bad teeth, right? Like, I know lots of people that have worked at carnivals and they're nice people. So don't be judgy. This is church. But so you go to a carnival and what do you see? You see one of those fun mirrors, those carnival mirrors, right? And what do you guys usually think? You're like, that doesn't look like me. Or sometimes it's really slimming and you're like, yeah, that looks. <laughs> it's like going into Dillard's and you're like, the lighting is so good. Man, I look good, right? This is a good haircut. Then you walk back outside and you're like, whoa, what happened? But you look at a carnival mirror and it's not you. And that's what happens when we begin to look at the world through this lens where we start to try to fit our identity into a box because of what culture says or because of what we think or because of what a friend says. And we find ourselves all out of proportion because we're trying to be somebody that we're not and we're trying to be someone that we were not created to be. And here's what happens. When you try to fit yourself into a box and somebody challenges you or somebody doesn't agree with you or say you, you found your identity in your job or your career or your relationship and that ended, what does it do? It wrecks you. And it can spiral us into anxiety and depression and lots of ugly things. Jesus, one time during the Sermon on the Mount, was talking about building on a foundation And he was talking about this picture of what does it look like to to build a house. And I want you to see what he has to say, because I think this is really practical for us as we think about what do we build our lives on. Because what you value, what you worship, and what you build your identity on is the foundation that your life sits on. And so Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, says this. He says that everyone who then, then who hears the words of mine the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom of heaven and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew 
and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it was founded on the, the rock. And then if you know the, the, the story, Jesus goes on to say, but if you don't listen, it's like the man who built his house on the sand. And when the winds came and the rains blew and the waves came, it knocked it off its foundation. So what Jesus is saying is that the foundation of our life, just like a house, must be something solid, that we can't build our lives on something that somebody else says or something that we think is true. We need to build our lives on what he says is true because that is the only foundation for the life we were created to live. And it's going to fill that God-sized vacuum in our heart. In Acts chapter 17, as you guys turn there, we see the Apostle Paul talking to a group in Athens, in Athens, Greece. And he's meeting with these philosophers and he's speaking in synagogues and he's having this conversation with them about what they've been building their lives on. And he challenges them that the foundation that they've been building on is a foundation that they think is right, that, that their culture thinks is right, but it's allowed them to drift far away from the life they were created to live. And I think there's a really important takeaway for us here. Because I'm going to guess in this room, many of us are on the journey trying to figure out who we are. What's our purpose in life? What is God calling us to do? Where do we find our value? And when we try to let culture and the world and what other people say to us shape that, or worst of all, if we try to let how we feel shape our identity, it's going to lead us to building our house on the sand. And it's like the old hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So what does it look like to build our house, our identity, our life on the rock? Well, let's look here in Acts chapter 17. So we have been uh, in a series called Kingdom Builders in the book of Acts, walking through Paul and Peter and the, the church as they are building the church. Last week, Pastor Mitch talked about how the church was planted in Philippi and how God was moving and people got saved and they put their faith in Jesus and the church started to, to spread like a wildfire. And today, as we flip one more chapter over to Acts chapter 17, we see Paul continuing on his second missionary journey. So here's a, here's a map, kind of shows you where Paul went on a second missionary journey. And you can see in this, he hit some big spots. He went to Corinth. He was in Thessalonica. You see Philippi at the top. That's where we were last week. He lit and goes to Ephesus. And um, that he spends three years in Ephesus. That was a big place he spent a lot of time in. Spent several years in Corinth. So uh, what, we, what we're going to see today is from he goes from Philippi to Athens. And so if you, if you kind of were tied in with this story, what was going on here with Paul is that Paul was running into some issues. Paul basically went from uh, Philippi and then he goes up to Thessalonica and he starts preaching. And in Thessalonica, he runs into some Jews that really didn't like what he had to say. And so he had to sneak out of town at night. So then he goes to Berea, and the people in Berea are a little more receptive. They, they start to meet in the synagogue, but then the Jews from Thessalonica follow him to Berea, and all of a sudden, he has to sneak away again. And so Timothy and Silas, they stay in Berea because they think this is a good place to plant, and Paul then travels to Athens to wait on Timothy and Silas. And so in Athens, you're going to see here, starting in verse 16, Paul encounters something that was very true for their culture. And I think we're going to see is very true for our culture today, that these people worshiped anything and everything. Notice here, Acts chapter 17. Look with me, starting here in verse 16. 
Now, while Paul was waiting for them, for Timothy and Silas at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. So here's a picture of Athens. It's a modern-day picture, but it kind of shows you what Athens looked like. Most of these old buildings were shrines. They were shrines or they were temples to these Greek gods and these Greek goddesses. Athens, at one point in time, was about 250,000 people, which was huge for an ancient city. But by the time Paul gets there, it's dwindled under Roman rule. It's about 20,000. But it still carries this title of being this majestic place. This is where Aristotle lived. This is where Plato lived, right? This was an important place. But as Paul walked around, he noticed something around Athens and that there were all these statues and there were all these little altars to all the gods, They worshiped the God of wine. They worshiped the God of war. They worshiped the God of fertility and the God of the rains and the God of barbecue sauce. And the God, you just fill in a blank, right? They had a God for it. And and it's thought that the Greeks had 30,000 gods. And at this point in time, there were 3,000 statues around Athens. That's a lot. And so Paul sees this and it says that he's provoked. Like he sees that this is, there's something wrong in this city. So he goes to the synagogue, which is where he often went, starts preaching. And then he goes into the marketplace, Right? So he goes downtown and starts talking, starts preaching, starts teaching about Jesus. Because Paul noticed, Paul knew something that I think is really important for us to know. And it's what A.W. Tozer once quoted saying. It's that when it comes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So Paul walks through Athens and he sees that, well, what they think about God is that there are thousands of gods what comes to your mind when you think about God? According to Tozer, it's the most important thing about you. And so Paul's going to lean into this with the, uh, the men and women of Athens, and I think there's a lot for us to take away from this too. So the, the, um, the, the Greeks had this belief that different gods had control over different areas of their life, and so they didn't want to miss one, right? So it's like we got God over here and a God over there, and we're going to worship all of them because we hope that they're going to bless us. And one of the things I think we're going to see in this text today is that Paul is going to say this, that when you try to worship everything, you can't actually worship anything. And so they tried to worship everything, but who were they truly worshiping? Really, Nobody. Let me ask you, how many of you would say that you're good at multitasking? You guys are all liars. <laughs> you know, uh, neuroscience has done some studies on this. Do you know that nobody's good at multitasking? We like to think we are, right? Like, I can walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. Yeah, but you can't sit in a meeting and text somebody and watch reels on YouTube, right? Like, it's just not going to work. And so one of the realities that they talk about is that your brain has to stop and to move to the next task. And so you can't truly multitask. You're singular tasking just in a wrong order. And what it does is it stops you. You guys ever, you ever back when people worked in offices, do you guys ever have your phone ring while you're in the middle of a project, right? Cranking on an Excel sheet, writing a love letter, whatever it is, right? And the phone rings and you pick it up. What happens? Well, you talk on the phone. But after you talk on the phone, what happens? You're like, what was I doing? Right? Or you forget what you're going to say and you have to go back and read the whole thing and to get back in motion. That's all you need to know that you can't multitask, I I think. 
But so the reality is none of us are good at multitasking because it doesn't work. Well, the same comes with the way we live our lives when we try to worship everything. If I try to worship my job and my family and I try to worship my hobbies and I try to worship what culture says and I'm also trying to go to church and worship Jesus, I'm trying to worship everything. I'm putting everything at this high position of value and then what happens at the end of the day, I feel dry, I feel stuck, I feel empty, I feel like something's missing. I'm searching for something else to fill my cup. Could it be that we just got things in the wrong order? You know, Augustine says that it's not that we worship the wrong things or that we love the wrong things. It's just that we love them in the wrong order. Like the, the things in your life, your relationships, your things, the, the hobbies, the homes, your careers, these things are never meant to be primary in our lives. But when we make them primary, it makes God what? Secondary or tertiary. It's a good word. You should use it this week. It means third. So we... we, we do this thing where we get things in the wrong order, but what would it look like if we reordered our life? Because when we try to worship everything, we can't actually worship anything. And this is what was going on in Athens. So Paul sees Athens as this idol factory, and he knows he needs to speak up. So look at verse 18. So he goes into the synagogues. He goes into the marketplaces, and it says this, that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? Isn't that awesome? Don't you wish somebody called you a babbler? You know you're doing something good when somebody calls you a babbler. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so notice verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Somebody say Areopagus. So this is funny, isn't it, that they call him a babbler? They're like, what is this guy babbling on about? But what I love about this is, you know, the Greeks, they, they, they think, they have this belief that you need to worship all of these gods so you hope that they bless you, that you can live a good life. And Paul comes in and says, hey, let me tell you about this guy named Jesus, who's the son of God, who came and was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life. Did all the things that we failed at, he did them well. And then he went to the cross. And he didn't deserve to go to the cross, but he went to the cross and he died, and he said, it is finished. And everybody was upset, and everybody ran away, and everybody felt depressed. But then, on Sunday, he rose from the grave, and he defeated death. And he helps us to see that we are forgiven of our sins when we put our faith in him, and we don't actually have to do anything to earn God's favor. We don't have to worship all of these false gods anymore. You just need, you, you just need to worship Jesus. Because as you put your faith in Jesus, he saves you, he changes you, he makes you a new creation, and he sets you on the path to live the life God created you to live. And the people go, man, what is he talking about? That sounds upside down. That doesn't make any sense, actually. And it's a reminder that the gospel challenges the way we see the world. There's this deep-seated reality, I think, that exists in the world that exists in all of us because we live in a broken world that's been corrupted by sin, that we all think that we need to climb the ladder to God, that we all think we need to do more good than bad because maybe somebody will bless us if we get right with the universe. We all think that we have to do enough good so that good karma will bless us later. So we have these thoughts that are swirling, like it's all about the way we, we do these things. And when somebody comes and says, well, actually, Jesus came and died for all your mistakes. 
And Jesus forgives you of your sin, your past, present, and future sin, and all he calls you to do to trust and believe. And as you believe, it'll change the way you live. That sounds like madness. It sounds like foolishness because they say, how could that be? No, it's up to me. And Jesus is telling us, no, he did it for us. He just calls us to follow. And so to the Greeks, they think that this is madness. They call him a babbler. There's two main parties here. Did you catch those names? The first ones were the Epicureans. Somebody say that, Epicurean? So the Epicureans, imagine like a, a modern-day existentialist, like a, like a Friedrich Nietzsche, right? The, the Epicureans, they, they believe that God's kind of created everything and they just left them to their own devices. And so their belief in life, they were kind of functional atheists and their belief basically was eat, have fun, eat, drink, and, and, and live it up and be merry because for tomorrow we die, right? They, it was all about material. It was all just about pleasure. So do whatever made you happy. That was the Epicureans. Then there was another group called the Stoic philosophers. Somebody say Stoic. You know, like when you hear Stoic, what do you think of? Like somebody like, I saw a couple of you rub your beards or you ladies, your chins. But like Stoic philosophers, their belief was it was all about living a virtuous life. So it was all about what you did. It was about having courage and showing love and showing care and doing all of these things. And if you did that, then you would live a good life. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds really familiar. But don't miss this, that both groups, they lived with the, the, the mentality that life was all up to them. It was either have fun or it was do what's right. But it wasn't, they didn't bring God, they didn't bring any values into place. And so life was ultimately all up to them. Seek pleasure or try to understand the way the world works and be a good person and then you can live a good life. But Paul is going to challenge this line of thinking. And so notice this. So Paul, he, he, he intrigued them. They liked what Paul had to say. And notice this, verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Don't, don't forget that. They want to tell or hear something new. Okay, here's a picture of the Areopagus. It's like a big rock, right? It stands like 370 feet off the ground, and they would climb up on it, and they would have court there. They would do judicial judgments there, and then this is kind of a, a speaker. You know, if you guys lived on campus during college, you, know, you had your speaker's corner, your speaker circle. This is where people would come and talk. So imagine Plato, Aristotle, they would stand up there, and they would talk. They would give thoughts. And they loved to hear what was new. They loved to talk about what was new because in their mind, they had all these things that they were working on, but there was something that was missing, right? So it has to be something new. Like, let me just learn something new and it's going to help my life. We don't do that, do we? There's always a new fad, what? Diet, workout plan. There's always something new, some new teaching that takes people astray because we think that man, we're just missing that one thing to make the right combination in my life. And if I can get it, life's going to be good. But Paul here is going to challenge this idea that they need to think about something new. And so uh, notice what Paul says in verse 22. So Paul's standing in the midst of the Areopagus. Imagine that picture. He says this, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Paul starts with a nice little greeting. 
because he knows he's about to get dirty. Now I'm here in a second. And then he says, For as I was passing along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now don't miss that. These Greeks were so worried that they would make the gods unhappy that they even made an altar to an unknown God, just in case they forgot one, right? Like we got, all right, so we got war and we got rain and we got the sea and then we, we, need, um, uh, we need apple cider over here, right? And like, like vinegar, you know, barbecue sauce, like just whatever. They could fit the, the, the you know, we got to find a God for all these things. Well, the unknown God, because there's probably one we haven't thought of yet, so let's just put him over here. And Paul uses that as context, as a jumping off point, to tell them about the unknown God who is actually known, Jesus. And so notice what he says. He says this in verse 23. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This is good. This will teach you how to share the gospel right here. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Like remember, there's this all these there's, there's these all these beautiful temples all around them, shrines. Every building in Athens was a, was a shrine or a temple to one of their fake gods. He would say, God doesn't live in these buildings, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. It is you see that dig. So you guys act like God needs you to do these things. Like God doesn't need anything. He's God. He made the heavens and the earth. And he says this, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. He says, God doesn't need you to do anything for him because he's the one that gives you life. And he's the one that gives you breath. And he's the one that gives you everything. So instead of thinking that you need to give God a little house here, just trust that the world is God's home. The world, God has created us for us to walk in and to live in and to enjoy. And so this, he says, and then verse 26, he goes on to give the picture of how God created mankind and that God wants to live life next to them. And so it's a really big challenge because they thought the gods were far off and they had to make them happy. And what Paul says is that Jesus is right here, right now, wanting a relationship with you. I think there's this reality, guys, and I don't know if this is where you are, but we all kind of live in this place where we're trying to figure out we're trying to walk and try to have this understanding of God. And if we think that we have to be good enough to earn God's love or his favor, if we think that we need to figure it out, if we think that we need to work it out on our own, then what's going to happen is we're going to fall into this perspective of moralistic, theistic, or I'm, I'm sorry, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Somebody say that. Moralistic, moralistic. therapeutic, Deism. And it just means that I need to do enough good in my life that God will accept me and let me go to heaven someday. Or we go the other route. We go to the universalist view where we say, well, all roads lead to heaven, that God is going to accept everybody. And so when we are trying to think that it's all on me, then we find ourselves thinking that we need to work it out, that we need to climb the ladder for, to God. And both of these views stem from the reality that we just don't know who God is. That we're living thinking that there's this unknown God out there, that we need to make all of these things work and make them happy. And Jesus comes into our world and says, no, you need to know me. I think one of the things Paul tells us is this, that God has made himself known so that we can walk in relationship with him. They're worshiping the unknown God, and Paul says, guys, let me tell you, actually, let me tell you about the God that is known. 
who has revealed himself to us. And I think this is an encouragement to us. I want you guys to, to be encouraged by this because some of you are still trying to find that mystical combination in your mind of what it's going to take to make God love you. I'm going to tell you right now, God isn't waiting for you to find middle C. If you guys are musical people, you know what I'm talking about. God isn't trying for you to find the right combination. God isn't waiting for you to do something right so he can float around and sprinkle pixie dust on you. Like, God is just asking you to turn to him and to trust him and to seek to know him. And as you do, he will reveal himself to you. And he's going to re reveal himself through this book. He reveals himself through the Holy Spirit. He reveals himself through his son so that you can walk and you can know who God is and who he says that you are and that your life has purpose and that your life has value and that your life has meaning, but that your life should be founded on the foundation of who God says you are and not who you think you are or who culture says that you are. So notice, since, since God has made himself known and God has created us, Paul says this, verse 29, being then God's offering, we ought to not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. Who's he talking about here? Jesus. Who? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. And he says this because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus whom he appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the Greeks, the Egyptians, they created all these little gods, right? So you'd walk in their house and they'd have Dionysus or they'd have Athena or whatever. And they'd have all these little gods and they would worship them. And Paul is saying, look, isn't it a little backwards to think that you're making a, a little figurine of the God that you're actually going to worship? Doesn't that seem a little bit backwards? He's like, the God that you worship isn't one that you make by your hands. The God that you should worship is the one that made everything you see by his hands. The stars and the universe, and this beautiful world, and these beautiful mountains, and the beautiful sea, and the beautiful people. But yet, we do this too. I know I do. You know, it's, it's really easy in life for us to find these little things that we, we worship, or these things we, we turn our uh, attention to. And so, you know, as a sports fan, I, I end up doing this all the time, right? You, you know, you, you end up getting a little figurine of the Joker, Right? I mean, who doesn't need a yoke statue on their desk, right? But probably the best one of all is the Patrick Mahomes one, right? Yeah. Some of you guys are like, who's Patrick Mahomes? Just kidding. I love you. I love you guys. Just kidding. But, but the reality is, like, imagine you walked into my house, and I'm, like, bowing down to these things. This is, this is what Paul's talking about. How ludicrous is this? But this is how the Greeks lived. They had their homes full of these things. They went to houses full of statues. And Paul's like, stop it. He's like, God let you do this for long enough, but the time of ignorance is gone, guys. Realize that God sent Jesus here for you, to give his life for you. Stop worshiping something made out of gold or silver or wood and worship the God of heaven, Jesus, who came and gave his life for you. Put your faith in him. And here's what Paul's really saying, guys. And this is, this is gonna cut us to the heart. We need to take this serious that we must accept God for who he says he is and not who we want him to be. And let's be real. How many people have heard somebody say, well, I can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank, right? 
I can't believe in the God of the Old Testament because he's a genocidal maniac. Even though I've never read the Old Testament, I have no idea what the context says, and I have no idea what Leviticus is even talking about. Right? Somebody sent me a video this week. You guys might have seen it about this church in Minnesota that's reciting the Sparkle Creed. If you haven't seen it, this is, guys, I'm telling you, are going off a cliff fast. But the church basically is trying to make God fit, like I said earlier, within this little box. And so the Sparkle Creed basically says, if you guys go, go watch this, it will confirm to you that when we try to fit our life on a foundation that isn't what God says, we're going to go off the rails quick. The Sparkle Creed just in general says that they're, they're praying to a non-binary God with plural pronouns. Jesus was born from two dads, and the Holy Spirit is a rainbow spirit. And I know you guys want to giggle, but you're trying not because you're not sure if it's appropriate. But that's just out there. I had a guy come knock on my door a couple weeks ago, and he's with a church that, and man, I love that they're out knocking on doors. We should do the same. We do, actually. Join us next Sunday. So this guy knocks on my door, and he says, hey, I'm here to tell you about um, the spirit mother or heavenly mother. And I was like, ooh, you came to the right house. <laughs> tell me more, please. And uh, he pulls some verse out of Genesis that's way out of context about how, you know, there's a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. And, and I was like, can I tell you what I think the Bible says? And then I shared the gospel with him and walked him through what I think Genesis 2 is talking about. And it's a really cool opportunity to share the gospel with this guy. And, uh, you know, we, he, he disagreed. But I just think there's so many examples out there of people who are trying to fit God in this box. They're trying to fit God in the box of what they think life should be. And so we, they built their life on what they valued most, and they have a foundation now. And so now they're trying to fit God into that framework. And it just doesn't work because it's backwards, right? You guys get that? It's backwards. Our foundation must be God and what he says. Because I think here's the reality that the reason people don't know, the reason people do this is because they just don't know God. They don't understand. They don't seek after God. But here's the beautiful thing. As you spend time seeking God, as you seek to know God, as you spend time in his word and ask God's spirit to move, as you spend time with God's people, what you start to see is that God is good and that God is just and that God is loving and that God is real and that God is fair and that God cares, and that he loves you, and that he sent his son here to give his life for you so that you can live the life you were created to live. God is so good, but we have to seek it. So Paul tells these men and women in Athens to repent that, that, this is the, that they've missed God, and notice what happens. This is the last. We'll, we'll close with, with this here. This is the last verse it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, right? Some of the Greeks are like, that doesn't make any sense to us. But others said, we will hear you again. Come back later. I want to hear some more about this, right? God's planting seeds. God's tugging at their hearts. And it says this, so Paul went out from their midst, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So right there in that moment, God moves. People get saved. People believe in the church is born in Athens. You know, I was re reading um, this week about Manny Pacquiao. How many of you guys know who Manny Pacquiao is? The boxer, right? 
Manny Pacquiao, he, he won 12 world titles, eight different weight classes, considered to be one of the, the greatest boxers in history. And if you read, some of you may know his story. If you read his story, the, the thing about Manny, they called him Pac-Man. The thing about Pac-Man was that he found his identity in who he was as a boxer. So he lived the boxer life. He flaunted the money. He had the cars. He, would, he was unfaithful to his wife because that's what boxers did. He went out and lived it up, dated all kinds of women, did all kinds of things he shouldn't have been doing. He was living a boxer life because that was the identity that he found himself. But you can probably guess how he felt about life. It was empty, even though he had all the money he could have. He was lacking. His soul was empty and dry. Well, Manny tells the story that one night he's, he's sleeping and he has a dream. And in his dream, God speaks to him. And he wakes up, he immediately puts his faith in Jesus and his life changes. He, he like repents of all the sin he did. He walks to his wife and he apologizes and he, his marriage is thriving now. He continued boxing for several years after that. But as a boxer, he began to say that I do this for Jesus. His, I, his whole life changed because the foundation changed. He no longer found his identity in being a boxer or being a rich guy or being in, in whatever entertainer circles he ran in. Now he found his identity in following Jesus. And it's a reminder, I think, for us that we, we can... Do the same. That whatever your life is, whatever you're finding your foundation in, that you are trying to fit within this framework of life and that you end up feeling dry or like something's missing, it's because we've been building on the wrong thing. And could it be that we just really don't know what God has to say about us and about the world and about Jesus? So here's one of the questions I just want to ask as, I, as we close is this. How do we begin to find our identity in who Jesus is? How do we change our foundation from my career, from, my, from this thing I love or, or I value most? How do I, how do I change my foundation or how, where I find my identity from what culture has to say about me? And I think it's this. I think first, just three quick takeaways, then we're done. First is we need to recognize the beliefs that we're embracing about ourselves. Some of you in this room walked in today thinking that you're not good enough. Or you've made too many mistakes, God can't forgive you. Or that you have no future because of something that you've done in your past. And God wants you to see that you need to wipe that clear. And you need to re really remember that we are not defined by our past mistakes and we are not defined by how we feel about ourselves. But we are defined by what Jesus says about us and who God says we are. And you know what God says? That when you say yes to him, you are beloved and redeemed and forgiven and restored and set on the path of life. So what are you saying to yourself that you just need to get out of your head? Second thing is you need to learn what God has to say about you. And I think the question is, are, are you guys spending time hearing what God has to say? Are you guys spending time around people who can tell you what God has to say? Are you asking God to reveal to you who you really are and who God has created you to be? Because as you do, you'll realize that you are so loved that Jesus came here for you. Third and lastly, I think it's this. You've got to dig deep in your local church, and whether that's forefront or it's another place, you've got to dig deep 
Because it's, it's not until you really begin to, to serve and to spend time with other believers that you can be able to take it from your head to your heart and understand that what God is telling you that you need to do is to follow him and to put him first and to build your life on his foundation and everything else will fall in place. Life's a journey. Building our foundation on Jesus is a journey, but it's a journey that God promises to be with us and to walk with us every step of the way. And the beautiful promises, the more we seek to know God, and the more we come to know him, the more beautiful we begin to see the world. And we realize that God has called us into something bigger and better than anything we'd ever do on our own. And that's to be the church. So church, let's go out this week and let's be the church. Would you pray with me?